Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church, uh, both here in the building and those of you who are with us online today. We welcome you as well. What a wonderful time of year. Uh, Many say uh, it is the most wonderful time of year. And throughout the holiday season, there are a number of different songs that we listen to. Uh, Some of us uh, listen to them by choice. Some of us are forced to listen to them because we can't go anywhere without them being on the radio or in the shopping mall or pretty much anywhere we turn our ear or our head. One of my favorite albums this time of year is Handel's Messiah, much uh, of peace on that album. Uh, Some of my favorite Christmas songs are Silent Night, Away in the Manger, as I'm sure many of you have your favorites as well. I like peaceful Christmas music. And as our family has grown and uh, has expanded, I've come to enjoy peaceful Christmas music even more so now than I did maybe five years ago. And there is one song in particular, and I hope I won't offend anybody here today, but I might. I'm sorry in advance. There's one song in particular that comes on this time of year very frequently that stirs me away from peace. It's a song that was written in the 1950s. Many of us know us very well. The composer, the writer of the song, his name was, is Andy Williams. The title of the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And as I grow older, the lyrics make me feel less and less at peace as I consider how Mr. Williams' Christmas Wonderland might actually, or sometimes does actually, play out in our home. Let me start with kids jingle belling. All right? Kids jingle belling. When I hear kids jingle belling in my home, what I want to say is, Go downstairs or outside with those jingle bells. Everyone telling me be of good cheer. And I want to say, you try living in a home with a 16, 15, 14, 12, 11, 10, and 6-year-old and tell me how much good cheer you still have left at the end of the day. (laughs) Friends coming to call. Can we just Zoom or FaceTime instead? (laughs) The house is not ready. It's never ready. (laughs) Parties for hosting. This is pretty much what every day in our home feels like. We don't want to have to do it over the holidays too. Marshmallows for toasting. That's too much work unless we can do it over the propane stove in the kitchen. Caroling out in the snow. Sounds like unnecessary torture. I know what I'm going to hear if I go with my children within five minutes is, it's cold! I have to go to the bathroom. It won't be long till everyone is complaining. Oh, scary ghost stories. We have three teenagers in our home. Your ghost stories, Mr. Williams, they don't scare me anymore. The teenage life stories are much more scarier. Now, there is one part of the song that I'd like to keep. Mistletoeing? Yes, 
with my wife? Yes, please. I'm, I'm at peace with the mistletoeing part of the song. But peace, it seems to be an ideal or a quality that often escapes us in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, especially during the holiday seasons. Why do we value and desire peace so much? Why do I value and desire peace so much? When I think about some of the biggest disruptions uh, in my life, I think about a quote that hangs in my office related to parenting. And it's really an indictment on sometimes how I can be guilty of making an idol out of peace and order. The quote is this. It's not original with me. I read it somewhere. I don't know who said it, but it says this. Quote, one of the biggest sources of conflict between me and my children is when they refuse to bow down to my idols. End quote. And herein lies the truth in my life. When I am most disrupted, when I am most impatient and flustered in my home, it is most often because my children have refused to bow down to my idol of peace. But certainly, peace is an ideal that we should expect to see cultivated in the lives and the physical spaces where followers of Jesus are present. And like love, peace is more than a feeling. There's something tangible and whole to its nature. It's more of a living posture that we embody and grow into as we are formed by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus. And isn't it amazing when God promises to send his son into the world, the name of his son is attached to many different qualities that would come to characterize both his nature and reign. One of those qualities is that he would be the prince of peace. In our time together this morning, we're going to spend some time focusing on the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. We're going to look at our memory verse to start in verse 6, but we're going to uh, look at some of the surrounding verses as well and other verses related to the peace of our Messiah in the New Testament too. Before we dive in, let's take time to pray and ask God to guide our time together. Father, as we gather this morning, we gather as a needy and hungry people, and we've come to a place of great nourishment in your word. Through your word, your spirit works in very powerful, living, and active ways to form us, to change us, and to mold us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And so as we come to these words today, words written long ago in anticipation for the promised Messiah that you would send. I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us, direct us, and move us, that you would instruct us and show us how we can use these words to go into our communities and to be a light and have effect for you in the places that you have planted us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have spent the last number of weeks memorizing this verse together from Isaiah. Let's say it together again this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Isaiah 9, 6. And today we're going to focus on this title, Prince of Peace. And as we do, we want to see ourselves like eager children around the Christmas morning tree or fireplace with three packages or questions to unbox and explore together this morning. First, why did the world need a Prince of Peace? Second, how did this Prince of Peace make peace a reality for his people? And then finally, what does this all mean for us today? The clearest images of peace that we find in the scriptures are at the beginning and the end of the narrative. Genesis opens and prior to the fall, Adam and Eve experience a special measure of peace as they dwell in an unbroken relationship with God. And then the fall happens and it corrupts everything. Through Adam and Eve's failure in the garden, sin and death enter the world and begin to infect and affect everything. Their stain and their corruption drive deep and they lay over God's creation like a thick and inescapable fog. All that God had created for good and for human flourishing, sin and death, ransack and destroy as the narrative of the Old Testament unfolds. One of the narrative's pathways is humanity's descent into chaos and despair. But along the way, as we read the Old Testament, we find the authors of Scripture as they're guided by the Spirit, they're sowing seeds of hope aimed at future peace and flourishing. The promise of prosperity and blessing. From the seed that would be sent to crush the head of the serpent to the dove that would return from the chaos of the waters with an olive branch. Then a wilderness that's filled with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Manna in abundance dropping supernaturally from the heavens. And then the hopeful lyric of a shepherd one that would lead his sheep along the still and peaceful waters. These future snapshots leave us with shards of hope that won't fully begin to make sense until we arrive at the threshold of the New Testament. The narrative pathway of humanity's separation from God crystallizes for us a disturbing and stark reality. It communicates this, that apart from God, there can be no peace, no human flourishing, no real prosperity or blessing. As we read, nations turn on nations. People are taken into captivity. There are wars, there's atrocities and famines and plagues. Our memory verse for this month is written in the context of one of these exact difficult moments. It's roughly 730 years before the birth of Jesus, and the bully of the ancient Near East is a country known as Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah has watched in horror as the Assyrians have crashed over neighboring nations with tidal force. 
their dominion was both relentless and brutal. At the time, the nation of Israel was already divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already found itself overcome by the power of the Assyrian forces. The southern kingdom had yet to be invaded, but they had enemies and pressures of their own nonetheless. Israel to the north had formed an unlikely alliance with one of their own historical enemies, a country named Syria. And they did this in order to push the Assyrian forces back within their countries. And eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria approached the southern kingdom of Judah and they attempt to form a coalition in the hopes that their proverbial cord of three strands would not be easily broken by the Assyrian aggressors. Judah was unsettled. They had enjoyed peace under the rule of a godly king whose name was Jotham, but now his son Ahaz had ascended to the throne, and Ahaz was not like his father. Rather than Putting his faith and trust in God alone, Ahaz took his eyes off of God and instead he chose to fear the Assyrians. And instead of forming a coalition with Israel and Syria, Ahaz instead sends a ransom to Assyria asking for their help. Eventually, Ahaz would adopt and begin to worship the Assyrian gods, even having their images included in the Jewish temple worship. He put his faith in the Assyrians, and as he did, the enemies of the southern kingdom began to close in. Ahaz's disobedience, his lack of faith, demonstrated the behavior of a faithless king, behavior that would eventually lead his people into captivity in Babylon. Dark, hopeless times for the nation. The whole scenario is giving us more insight into the brutal consequences of sin and death's entrance into the world. The hope for a right relationship with God seems crushed by the oppressive forces of sin and death and their consequence. Humanity had found itself captivated by these things. We see this over and over again. They're captivated by death, by division, by pride, by war, and it creates a ravine between humanity and God, one that could not be traversed or negotiated by human means or ways. Repeatedly throughout history, we find our inability to lead and govern in a way that works towards the good and human flourishing of every nation, tribe, and language. Sin and death have led to an inability for those in the world to know or make true, real, or lasting peace. And for this reason, church, we need a Prince of Peace to show us the true, the right, the better way. And so God answers our inability to make peace and to know peace with someone who is able. He sends His Son who will take the government upon his shoulder and govern with perfect justice and righteousness. Look down at Isaiah. Again, chapter 9. We want to look at verses 2 through 5. 
hope in dark times. Starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Built within these four verses are signs that will accompany this son who was coming into the world. It tells us at the beginning that the people were walking in darkness, that they would see a great light. And when Jesus comes, he comes as the light of the world. His light is shining in the darkness. It also tells us in these verses that joy is going to increase, that he will multiply his people. And isn't it amazing? That as we open the first chapters of Luke's gospel, we are confronted over and over and over again with increasing joy. Luke chapter 1 verse 14, Zechariah and Elizabeth's grief is turned to joy with the birth of John. Luke chapter 1 verse 47, Mary is rejoicing and singing. Luke chapter 1 verse 58, the neighbors and the relatives are rejoicing. Luke chapter 1 verse 67, Zechariah's joy spills over into praise. Luke chapter 2 verse 10, the angels bring good news of great joy. Luke chapter 2, 21, the angels or the shepherds return glorifying and praising God. Verse 4 calls us to reflect on deliverance. And again and again in Luke's narrative, Simeon and Anna are seeing the child Jesus as their true deliverer. Along with this joy comes this concept of freedom and deliverance. Jesus goes into the synagogue where he takes the very scroll of Isaiah. Actually, it's handed to him. And he begins to read from it. Listen to as he reads. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to release the captives. And the regaining of sight, and to give regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to tell them this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, even as you heard it being read. Jesus would set the captives free just as he had prophesied. 
He would later say this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But Isaiah's prophecy, it points to even more. There's light, there's joy, there's deliverance, but there's also rest from warring and anxiety. Verse 5 again of Isaiah's prophecy. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jesus, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And with this, he is able to give his people true and lasting peace. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is not hard to carry. All of these signs, all of these things coming as the Messiah breaks into the world as an infant. And then finally, right after verse 6 of Isaiah 9, Verse 7, Jesus would establish a government of peace as he reigns with perfect justice and righteousness. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Prince of Peace establishes a government characterized by peace with no end. And he does this in the primary way by solving humanity's, our problems of sin and death. That's how Jesus does this. You see, the people, we were held captive by sin awaiting our soon coming death. And Jesus comes into the world and the contrast is striking. If we go back to Adam and Eve at the fall, sin comes into the world and followed by sin, there's death, there's darkness, there's blindness, there's deafness, poverty, despair, and pride. But when Jesus comes as an infant in the manger, What follows is life. Light breaks through the darkness. The blind are now able to see those who are deaf because He is the Word and speaks may hear. Though some would be born in poverty, He extends to humanity the abundance of riches that are a part of His kingdom. He gives hope to the hopeless He overturns the proud by arriving as a gentle, lowly, and humble infant. His reign and his power are manifested in distinctively different ways than the world's. His ways, as they have always been, are not our ways. Rather than fearing the world that he was sent into, Jesus embraces the people he was sent to save. Rather than hiding 
from the sins of humanity. Fearful that he may be guilty by association, he takes on our sins. He takes on the sins of his enemies, the very ones who would crucify him. He would show himself willing to die for. He who was without sin becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how our Prince of Peace reigns and brings true peace into the world. And he wasn't finished. After taking on our sin, bearing the weight of our guilt and our shame, Jesus dies on the cross, his death a payment for our inability to save ourselves, for our sin. It appears that at this point in the narrative, if we just stop right there at his death on the cross, that Jesus has just become another good person who at the hands of the very people he came to save fell victim to the powers of sin and death. But the story doesn't end on the cross. Amen? It's not where it ends. Three days later, his body stirs. The power at work within him overcoming the grip of death. He raises from the dead and in his resurrection he delivers a fatal wound to sin and to death. Peace is available with God. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection make it possible for you and I, for humanity to be restored to a right relationship with God the Father. His person and work become the bridge that traverses and negotiates the ravine between humanity and God. And as the Spirit draws the children of God to the Father, we all come, every one of us who know the Lord, come to a place where we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. And isn't it amazing that in this humble posture of confession and repentance, the turning away from our sin and the turning towards Jesus, that this is where Jesus delivers us unto salvation, the place of our lasting and eternal peace. This was my life. This was our life. Prior to Jesus, we are captive to sin and destined for death. After Jesus, we are destined for life, for wholeness, peace with God. I pray today that if you are here and you do not yet know this peace, that you would not leave without knowing it. The Prince of Peace is available for everyone who is in this building and listening online today. He's available to you. Jesus knows us so well. He's so intimately acquainted with us. Even before we know him as our Lord, he still knows us. We see this over and over and over again in the Bible, how well he knew people. He, he knew his disciples. He, he knew those who belonged to him. He knew those who had not yet confessed. 
He knew that there would be fear and loneliness after his physical presence ascended into heaven. Preparing them for the commission that he would give them, one that would lead to the establishment of the church and the proclamation of good news throughout the world, Jesus said the following words in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. Today, for those who know Jesus, the promise of the Holy Spirit, a presence of peace, the power of God in us and through us daily. And friends, if you do not yet know Jesus, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is given to all who call upon the name of the Lord. His presence could be a daily part of your life, His peace could dwell with you in the midst of your storms, in the depths of your heartaches, in the bowels of your disappointments, in the valleys of your grief. You can know the peace of God that passes all understanding through a relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. The writers of the New Testament pick up on this theme of peace in Jesus' prophecies in the Old Testament and in his narrative in the Gospels. And they drive his followers in the early church towards some tangible ways we can experience, live, and share this peace in the world today. Friends, if, if we are gathered today, those of us who are here and listening online, and, and we know Jesus, this peace should express itself in our daily lives. It's more than a feeling. There's actions, tangible things that we should expect to see as well. It is, after all, fruit of the Spirit that followers of Jesus should embody. Love, joy, peace. Two scriptures to consider as we begin to wind our time down this morning. These are words that were written, delivered to, and studied in communities of Jesus' followers living in the ancient world. They're words that are aimed at corporate or interpersonal relationships, but are also applicable for our personal lives. The first is instructions on how we should have peace in every circumstance. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. Then verse 7, and what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is little doubt that one person by themselves could make a difference living this way? We certainly can. But Paul's vision is greater than the individual. Paul is imagining as he writes to these churches, entire communities of faith drawn together, sharing and participating together in Christ, living free from the anxiety of daily life because in every situation, they're finding themselves coming together, driven to patterns of prayer, petition, dependence on God, thanksgiving, as we take our request 
to God, experiencing as a community together His perfect peace that's available to us. Through these communities, there will be a peace from God that surpasses all understanding that will serve to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because we know we are secure in the one who has set us free. And I wonder today, what kind of attraction might a community existing in this manner have in a world that is burdened and taxed with worry and anxiety and fear? I don't know. Our lives can be really unsettled. Things can get really out of hand really quickly. And I can imagine if there's someone in our spheres, in our personal spaces that doesn't yet know Jesus, if we could point them or direct them to a community of people that dwell together in harmony, bringing their anxieties and their worries and their fears to a place where together they can lay them down at the feet of Jesus and recognize that perfect peace that we've been given in Him. I would think that would be a pretty attractive thing to this world we live in today. But it's not just peace within our everyday circumstances that the early church leaders were concerned with. For the church and those of us who are a part of it, along with peace in our circumstances, we should also experience peace within our relationships. Again, In a letter that was written, read, and studied by a community of believers in Colossae, which was part of the first century Roman Empire, Paul wrote these words. Chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Colossians. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive others. And to all these virtues, add love, which is the perfect bond. And then verse 15, let the peace of Christ be in control in your heart. For you were in fact called as one body to this peace. And be thankful. Gratitude in both of those verses. Peace in both of those verses. Paul's ideal for the community elect of God. That is all of those who are gathered who know the Lord. Or who may soon know the Lord. Is that the peace of Christ would control the heart of our church. Reminding ourselves and demonstrating to the world that we have been called together in unity. In one body. The body of Christ. And as our world grows further divided, polarized, divisive, and hostile towards one another. How attractive could a gospel-centered community look For someone being drawn by Jesus to a different way of living and being human in this world. Friends, we don't have to bite and devour and tear one another apart. There is a community of communities that God has established in his church. 
a place where brothers and sisters are to unite around the well, which is the Messiah, which is Jesus, gathering around him, dwelling together in peace with one another. What a different way. What a countercultural way to live and be in this world today. And I might ask as we close today, I know our choir is going to be returning to the platform. They can begin to make their way up now. Could it be that one of the brightest ways that we might shine and have effect in this world that God has planted us in and called us into would be to embody and share these patterns of peace that we have found in Christ, both in our personal lives and in our communal lives. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have sent your son. We're thankful that he came as everything that he was prophesied to be in the Old Testament, including the Prince of Peace. Father, we're thankful that when he came, he did what was necessary, taking our sins and dying our deaths so that a right relationship with you could be possible through knowing Jesus. Lord, if there are any here today, if there are any listening that do not know this peace, that do not know you, I pray that even right now in these quiet moments, they would confess with their mouths that you are Lord and believe in their heart that you have raised Jesus from the dead. And turning from their sin, I pray that they would find life and life and life in abundance in you. God, you are good to save us. You are gracious to save us. And salvation belongs to you. You are the king of peace because in you we can know true, real, and lasting peace forever. Thank you for a time long ago in a place far away where you sent your son into the world in ways that did not look like power to the world. But were powerful in an everlasting way. For humanity. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.